Hello, folks, and welcome to The American Attic, where we uncover historical insights through hindsight. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover the past through expert-led, dialogue-driven discoveries of California history and beyond. One hour was not nearly enough time to really dive into the subject of today's episode. The data recording was around the middle of April, just under two months into the Ukraine conflict. So what you'll hear in today's episode are a combination of commentary on current events as of mid-April, as well as a larger placing of these topics into their proper historical context. So you can consider it a combination of discussing where we are now, as well as discussing how we got here. Our guest today is Dr. James Armstead, who among wearing many hats in his career, he has been a professor, he has been an army officer, he has been a legal expert, and a couple of highlights of this illustrious career include being chief of staff to the vice chair of the U.S. House International Relations Committee, also known as the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, a tenure at the Department of Defense, where he participated in negotiations that enlarged and expanded NATO. Dr. Armstead was also a participant in constitutional reforms in Montenegro, South Africa, Poland, and other countries. And he was appointed an international election observer for elections in Belarus, Kazakhstan, as well as Ukraine. Along with some of these highlights, Dr. Armstead is a, a great guy and a truly masterful storyteller. I have been privileged enough to watch him perform uh, historical reenactments, historical characters in the Chautauquan tradition, which hopefully we'll be able to devote another episode to. And to see him bring these characters to life, bring these topics and these periods to life in this particular format was truly something to behold. So without further ado, Please enjoy this special episode of The American Attic, providing a historical glimpse of the unfolding events currently in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us, Jim, and welcome to the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah. It's good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, um, I've been taking notes. I had some questions in advance of this meeting and also from the materials that you shared, the conversations that you were having um, with that KVEC down in the Central Coast. That was fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. I think the first the first question, before we even get to the topic of Ukraine, uh, the first question I was curious about personally was, um, what, what puts you on the trajectory to pursue a, a academic and professional career in so many things, but but largely involved in international relations, history, some of these topics that that we have discussed in the past. What's the origin story there? What set you on that trajectory? That, that, goes, that goes back fifty years. If, if you don't mind, I'll go back with you. <laughs> no, no, no. That covers covers a lot of territory. Yeah. I like like most young men in the sixties. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, there are those who argue that I haven't grown up yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that may be part of the problem we're dealing with here. Um, I always like new things, interesting things. Uh, as, a, um, as an undergraduate, I majored in history, minored in anthropology. I was an escapee from medicine. 
I tried to kill my lab partner one day. <laughs> I'm bending pipettes. So, you know, they're brand new pieces of glass. You take sure. them out of the you put them over the Bunsen burner, and depending upon the experiment, you've got to do things with the pipette. You've got to turn it or twist it, make it a curly cue, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I looked over, and the guy next to me is going down. So something on the pipette, he breathed when I heated it up, put him out. I looked up, and I saw the chemistry teacher running toward me. That's the last thing I remember, and I collapsed. I got up. I took off my lab coat. Yeah, you know, students wore, you know, this is 1964. Mm-hmm. Students wore ties in those days. It's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I put on my, took off my, my lab coat, put on my, uh, my jacket. I walked over to arts and sciences and I changed majors. Uh, my father wanted me to be a doctor. He was a lawyer. He wanted me to be a doctor. He thought I was much too political. Mm-hmm. He said, with your attitude, you are going to make enemies. You are not going to do well. You ought to go into medicine where your politics isn't going to matter. Mm-hmm. That if you just keep your mouth shut, you'll make a living. It'll be okay. So that's what he really wanted. That's what he saw for me. I had no talent in quantitative analysis. Uh-huh. So qualitative, you know, that's, you can sort of memorize the chemistry, you know, the map, that's okay. The regular science is okay. Quantitative analysis where you've got to measure things and come up with that the percentages of precipitants in the chemistry experiments I had no talent for that. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to kill my lab partner, who was a chemistry <laughs> major. You know, he wasn't happy. The chemistry teacher wasn't happy. I'm getting straight A's in history, mm-hmm. not doing very much because I'm spending all this time trying to figure out what's going on with chemistry. You know, what what is chemistry? You know, what what's the essence of chemistry? Sure, I never sure. got to that. That, that. that wasn't something. And I think if I got there, it wouldn't have interested me anyway. Uh-huh. So I, I went into history. Uh, the University of Illinois had some fantastic people in history. So I had three fields, Russian history, uh, German history, and uh, an American and American history. I, mm-hmm. I, I did something on all three of those fields because we had famous people, Gilbert Arsofsky in Black American history, who opened his first class with, I know more about John Brown than any man living. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this guy has got a hell of an ego. Uh-huh. Years later, I realized he was right. He actually knew more about John Brown than any man living. Mm-hmm. And it was a great privilege to be one of his students. <laughs> we got to be good friends. And he had a coterie of students that, you know, if he liked you and you did well, you sort of joined his little group. Well, I joined that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russian history, the names were confusing, but the the intrigue was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was Pickney Smith and Carl Schleunis who at the University of Minnesota years later became the preeminent German-American historian in the country. Uh, and he was had a great deal to do affecting my career. Carl Schleunis, uh, and he doesn't know this, mm-hmm. Carl Schleunis uh, was my thesis advisor for my undergraduate thesis, which I wrote on Prussian militarism. Well, anyway, I finish, uh, finish college. I uh, start, uh, start law school. I'm a, uh, a regular army officer. And um, I, I have a delay to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And of course, Vietnam is going on. 1968, the big tech comes along. And the chief of armor branch, Jimmy Leach, who was on the second tank to go into Berlin at the end of the Second World War, uh, Jimmy Leach writes me a personal letter. Second lieutenants on, on delay for law school, they don't get personal letters from the chief of armor branch. This yeah. is a big deal. Colonel Jimmy Leach writes me this letter. What he says is that if I were in engineering school, learning how to make better tanks, he'd leave me alone. Mm-hmm. But I'm on the books as an armor officer. 
we just had the big tent. They've lost lots of second lieutenants. They need second lieutenants in armor. And if I stick with what I'm doing three years from now, I'm going to graduate from law school. I'm going to go off to another branch. Mm -hmm. He's carried me for three years. He doesn't get anything out of me. He needs lieutenants. So on or about 19 August 1969, I am to report to Fort Knox, Kentucky for Armor Officers Basic School. Mm -hmm. And so I I report, I I go off and have a good time there. And I go to CAV school, which is uh, uh, an extra thing. I, 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 I like the concept of cavalry and that sort of thing. And then because I'm delayed from all of these extra schools, I can't get to Europe when my classmates get there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm asked if I want to go to an additional school, which is information school, how to be a public affairs officer at Fort Fort Benjamin Harrison, Mm -hmm. Indiana. So I go to that. So I end up in Europe uh, the next uh, the next April. I should have been there in November. So I've got classmates from my AOB class, uh, Dave Sherlock, who is on the board of uh, Dave and I were in the same class in in, uh, August, but he's already been at the unit five months when I get there. So I arrive um, and uh, I'm because of a change of lieutenants, they need an S2. Normally lieutenants go to platoons. You don't go to the staff right away. Mm -hmm. So I get a staff job because there's an ex- a test going on. It's called an operational readiness test. That determines if the battalion is combat ready. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of right in my alley. You know, I knew how to do this job. It made sense. I did very well at it. You know, it's about three weeks. We get a, in my staff section, we get a 100, which is unheard of. Yeah. So the senior captains and majors, their staff, the, the, the two, the three, the four, uh, the five, they're getting, you know, 85, 75, 85. That's really very good. I get 100. So the colonel notices me, but I still got a platoon that you're yeah. not staying in this job. You're going to get a platoon. You're going to learn how to drive tanks and, you know, maneuver tanks and do that's what tank officers do. Sure. But because of this, I had been noticed by higher authorities. So about six months later, I am asked to come to division headquarters to take over the information job. So yeah. I have a newspaper to run. I have a half an hour weekly radio show. Uh, we do TV interviews for stars and stripes of people in our division. Mm-hmm. And of course we contribute. I've got four reporters. I'm literally the fifth reporter and the fourth photographer. You know, they Jim, can I ask a quick clarifying question? Yes, sir. Um so so bouncing back real quick, it sounded like teachers, you mentioned those, I think it was two or three teachers that you had a few moments right. ago. It sounded like they were a, a big part of they your were. introduction. Do you remember what it was about those those well, personalities or classes that really pulled you to him? As I, Gilbert Arsofsky, it was the ego. The the He knew what he knew. He knew he was the number one person in this area, and he was very comfortable with that. Uh, Pickney Smith was a, to look back, a little, a bit insecure as a person. Uh, as a teacher, he knew his area there weren't many people interested in Russian history. So I got the impression he was sort of recruiting people who would major in that area, perhaps go to grad school in that yeah. area. That sort of confirmed what he was doing, that it was important. Sure. Slinus was, uh, well, he's European. Uh, he's a, a German historian. He's an American, but his education was European. He had gone to, uh, he'd gone to Oxford. Uh, he presented a different point of view. And 
and I, I suppose slowness was you shouldn't talk about what you do, your specialty area, unless you know everything there is to know about it first. So, sure. And that's very European. They, <laughs> they do a second dissertation called a habilitation. So you are not an academic. You're not a professor, even though you've got a job as a teacher or a lecturer. But you can't call yourself a professor until you finish this second dissertation with Americans would, would say, well, first of all, you're already an expert in one thing. Why do you need this second one? Why uh -huh. do you have to have everything down? And having taught in Europe, it's very interesting, your interaction with students, they focus life very differently. They, they, yeah. they, they don't do show and tell as children you know, yeah. coming up. So in graduate school, when you have European students or undergraduate students, I've had in England and France and Poland and the Ukraine, they actually have to be forced to talk, to yeah. get them to discuss a subject, to argue a particular point of view. They don't think they should do that in class in a formal academic setting mm -hmm. until they've gotten not only the first degree, the first job, but that second dissertation, that habilitation, uh -huh. where they are fully integrated into the academic community. So I got to th see these three very different historians yeah. and comparing them. It made it interesting to me, but I still hadn't decided to be an academic. It was sort of in the army. That, uh, that second year, after that first job, um, the, I worked for a uh, the three, I worked for three really smart people in my time. One of them is a Colonel Oberst, Gunther Oberst. And if you speak German, Oberst means Colonel in German. Uh -huh. So behind his back, we called Gunther Oberst Oberst, Colonel mm -hmm. Colonel. Uh, you didn't call him that to his face, of course. Of course. <laughs> he had a thick German accent. He had been a captain in the Hitler Youth. He'd come to the United States after wow. the war. He'd gotten here. I think he was here six weeks and he was drafted for Korea. Wow. So he, literally, they, they, they give him his green card and say, by the way, congratulations. Welcome to the Army. He, he real, real quick, I just wanted to clarify. He was a participant in the Hitler Youth and then later in the Hitler Youth and later served in the U.S. Army. And he served as a career. One of our most famous colonels. Uh, Gunther that's, that's got to be a short list. I can't imagine that that's a very long list of people. He was a done. very unusual man. He was a wow. very, was absolutely brilliant. Wow. Well, I, because uh, the army was going to a new, uh, a new paradigm where something called civil military affairs became very important. How does the army relate to civilian society? Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was military government in the second world war came out of this, this group. Well, it was decided that among the G staff, the, the one, two, three, four, one is personnel, two intelligence, where I worked at the battalion, three is operations, the important staff job, of course, that runs the war, four is supply and logistics, five is civil military operations. So it was designated that division headquarters, which were run by major generals, would have a G5, a civil military operations officer. Well, there were very few people school trained. There was a school back in the United States, uh, in Georgia, that trained officers to do that. So I was designated the G5. Well, I'm, I'm a first lieutenant. Uh, this is a lieutenant colonel's job. So I sat behind Colonel Oberst, behind the G1, because information was tied to the G1. I worked for him. So they made, they said, well, G, G and he's German, of course, mm -hmm. he's mm -hmm. German. Uh, still has an accent. He never lost his accent. Wow. Uh, he knew as much about the German army 
and the area where we operated, this was Southern Germany. Now uh, we were in a place called Gerpingen, which is outside of Stuttgart, about 40 kilometers. Mm-hmm. But we were responsible for most of the military operations in Bavaria, as well as uh, some of our division was in the state of, of Baden-Württemberg and Rhineland Falls. We were in three states. So we were the most spread out division of the entire United States Army. Mm-hmm. So from one end of our operational area to the other was more than 100 miles. So I became the G5. And I did that job for a year, but but the IO and the G5. And so I got the, I, I took German lessons. So I had to learn to speak German. I didn't speak any when I went into this job. A if, event came up, a meeting with the 10th Panzer Division, which was our sister division to our left. Mm-hmm. So we were part of the 7th Corps next to the 2nd German Corps. The first army division was the leftmost unit of the 2nd German Corps. The 10th Panzer, the rightmost unit of the, the 2nd uh, the, the Seventh American Corps. So we needed a liaison officer to do that. So Colonel Oberst and his discussions with the G3 of the 10th Panzer Division decided that they would send someone and I was selected. So we had this discussion when it was announced. I came late to a meeting when it was announced. So that's the first, never come late to a meeting. That's sure. always a problem. I come late to the meeting and it's announced that, by the way, you're going to be our liaison, which I said, Colonel, I already have two jobs, as you know, working for you. There isn't time to do this other job. Quote, Jim, we think you're going to do well in the Army. This would be absolutely excellent for uh, for your progression, and it would be a great experience. Wow. Well, he's a colonel. I'm a first, second, a first lieutenant by then. Guess who won the argument? You know, the colonel <laughs> wins, right? Yeah. I go to the second German Corps. I report into the G3, whose name is Klaus von Stauffenberg. Mm -hmm. His father is the man who left the bomb under Hitler's desk. Mm -hmm. And he's a major, which is unusual. This is a senior lieutenant colonel's job. He was a brand new major. Clearly, he's going places. He did become a major general. Was 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 that the assassination attempt featured in the film Valkyrie? Is that the same one? Got it. Okay. Yeah, this is the younger Klaus von Stauffenberg. Got it. Klaus Jr., if you will. So Major von Stauffenberg says to me, uh, you know, Colonel Oberst thinks a lot of you. You know, he's assigned you here. You know, he gives me the commander's glance, you know, your tie straight, creasing your trousers, shoes are shiny. And he says, are you a foreign area specialist officer? No, sir, I'm not. Are you a um, uh, are you a German speaker? Are you a specialist? in No, French was my language in, in college. I've learned a little German because I run the division newspaper. I deal with public affairs. So I've had to learn a little bit. And, and the way I learned German, my secretary, who was German, in the morning would not speak to me in English unless it was an emergency. She would only speak to me in German. So this I'm forced. And I had a sergeant, a German speaking sergeant. So the two of them would make fun of me. So they would torture me in the mornings to make me, you know, because you had to learn how to deal with people. You know, it didn't matter if I didn't read German correctly. My German grammar wasn't great, but I had to be able to talk to reporters, to uh, talk to the uh, the editors of the local newspaper, things like that. So they had worked me over for about a year. So I probably spoke very good German for a 10 year old. You know, it wasn't yeah. great grammar. And I spoke present tense German. You know, there's a future perfect conditional, which we don't have in English. Yeah. And which I had determined after about six months, they don't really need it in German. This yeah. is sort of, it proves that you know the rules of grammar if you use future perfect conditional. Um, you, an American young man would not say to a girl he's just met, he's getting along, things are going great. You really wouldn't want to go to the movies with me tonight, would you? 
She would say, well, no, if you can't make up your mind, that's future perfect conditional. We don't even think that way. But uh, but I had a great deal, great deal of fun with that. Good. I took a job. Uh, so Van Stauffenberg, then he said, is your father a general? He says, no, my father is a is a lawyer back in Chicago. Then he wanted to know where I went to school. So I told him the University of Illinois. He asked if I knew Professor Carl Schleudis, to which I said, not only do I know him, I took all of his classes, but I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Prussian militarism. From that point on, I could do no wrong. You know, nice. Stauffenberg thought, you know, maybe Colonel Oberst is right. Maybe this 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 young lieutenant is not a total idiot, even though he doesn't speak very good German. It sounds that's not. That sounds like a foot in the door if I've ever heard one. It, That's awesome. it was a foot in the door. It made the job great. I spent a week a month in the German army for a year. And uh, what I learned from that is, one, I like international affairs. I could work with people from other cultures. I had a sensitivity that it doesn't have to be done the American way. There was this great expression the Germans had. It can't be done. They would say to you in German, something can't be done. You would suggest it. And after a while, I became comfortable with them. They knew me. I knew them. I would respond, no, it can be done. You just don't do it that way. There are people who do it. Us or the French or somebody does it. But I learned how to get along with these people and decided then I wanted to do international affairs, international law. Got so my tour in the army ended and I go back to law school because I was just, I could have gotten an MBA or a law degree. Mm -hmm. I chose law because I could work on my own independently if things didn't go well. Uh, you know, the MBA, you got to work for a big company the way I looked at it, you know, in the 1960s approach to life. But when I came back to law school, I then knew I wanted to do international law. And there was a professor at DePaul named Sharif Bassiouni my criminal law professor, who was also the international law person. Well, not only was he the international law person, he was the leading light in international criminal law at the time. So he was the guy changing the world, Geneva Convention, Hague Conventions, Law of War, that sort of thing. I became his research assistant, you know, helped him with, with a couple of books he was working on, and then graduate and go off to practice. And I start working on a PhD fairly soon, in uh, national security affairs, public policy, that area, the sort of to polish up the international law. Now, do you know the other side, the international relations? Was was this the teacher? Because I was reading that that SEPA article. Um, was this the teacher that said, and I think the, it's this quote, how do we get our adversary to do what we need and want them to do? Was this the same teacher that, that had that quote in that article? That's, that's Albert Wallstetter. Okay, okay. Albert Wallstetter was uh, another leading light in international affairs uh, for many years at the University of Chicago. Albert advised every president from Franklin Roosevelt to Bill Clinton. The reason why he's not advising presidents now, he's dead. Yeah. But, um, uh, a, a leading light. Albert was... Yeah. At Rand, Rand, the Rand Corporation sponsored my dissertation. Got it. Lightweight power projection. Albert, who was president of another company called Panuristics, uh, and also on the board of Rand, uh, he was in the group that uh, was responsible for the work I was doing on my dissertation. They Got were it. developing at the time a new army doctrine called Airland Battle. I worked on the land portion of airland battle and developing a new concept of operations where you fight at the FIBA, the forward edge of the battle area. So the three, the operations officer is trying to figure out 
for the commander? What fire, what, what people, what, uh, what, how, what kinetic energy we're going to put on mm-hmm. the forward edge of the battle area to win. Yeah. Well, I was working on another staff section that I call the six, the S six, the S six would worry about the battle from five to 15 kilometers behind the forward edge of the battle area, because the way the Russians fought was by a model where they would streamline their force, concentrate on a certain area, attack at the fee, but then widen behind your area to try to destroy your rear area security. Mm-hmm. Well, since they came with this particular model, they did things at a certain distance behind the FIBA. If you could interrupt that, that, that model, that structural model they had, if you could interrupt that, they would not be successful at the FIBA. Mm-hmm. So you have to fight them at the FIBA, but you also needed to fight them five to 10 to 15 kilometers to the rear. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, that I'm glad you brought that up, the strategy side of it, the, the land battle side of the strategy you were studying and, and working with, because um, I think that's a great jumping off point for uh, to, to wade into Ukraine and this this current events in, in Europe and Eastern Europe in particular right now, um, which I know that you have studied and, and spent a lot of time with. So I, I figured for the average American, the average listener who doesn't have the background, how would you describe kind of where we are now with the Ukrainian conflict? How would you describe how we got here? Well, our relationship with the Ukraine, our Mm -hmm. strategic relationship really doesn't start until the the, the early 90s. When, When Clinton becomes president, the Soviet Union has fallen apart. Uh, they've disintegrated. The several states are not sure where they're going. They're wandering around uh, trying to feel their way. And some, it still isn't here. Belarus, for example, still in the Russian orbit, hasn't broken away. They are still a Soviet state, but there's no Soviet Union. Sure. But uh, they're Lukashenko, the uh, the head of the, uh, who was the last head of the socialist, uh, the the Soviet Socialist Republic of Belarus, Mm -hmm. he is now the president of Belarus 32 years later, uh, still very close to Moscow, still following the party line, still sort of looking for Russian leadership in that old role of Soviet satellite to, uh, to to the Soviet central government in Moscow. The rest of the countries, uh, uh, the Baltics, for example, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, immediately declared their independence. They had all been independent states uh, after the First World War. So they had that 20 years of democracy, uh, as had Poland, um, and they wanted to be separate from the Soviet Union, they were taken over just before the uh, the Second World War, before we got into it. So sure. after the, the First World War starts in Europe, uh, they've been taken over by the Soviet Union as part of a defensive perimeter after the Soviet Union is invaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ukraine uh, had been free after the First World War for, for, for three and a half years, from 1919 until 1923, the civil war going on inside of Russia, the Polish-Russian war, uh, they were part of that. They were part of both of those struggles, torn at both ends. They didn't wow. ally with 
themselves with the Poles to do well. They fought on the side of the white Russians, that is the old czarist Russians, against the Reds. They lost on both sides. It was almost, there. there's a, a an American historian who says about the American Indians and the Cherokee in particular, every time the Cherokee get the choose, when they go to war, they pick the wrong side. Yeah. They fought with the British wow. in the Revolutionary War, again with the British in the War of 1812, and then they picked the South to fight with in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of they can't they can't win for losing. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, the Ukrainians have been like that, picking. They're in a tough neighborhood. Yeah, uh, the, this internecine tribal warfare across the steppes over the last thousand years, uh, they don't do very well. In fact, the name Ukraine means borderlands. Mm-hmm. So if we talk about you know who's a German. Uh, who's French, who's Belgium, there is a genetic connection. There is a longtime geographic connection on where an ethnic group or a tribe has been. But with the Ukraine, there are a number, there are 10 or 12 major tribal groups in the Ukraine. The royal family that uh, when we first have a royal family in the Kevin Roos, they're really a um, uh, the Varangians. Varangians is an Eastern European word for Vikings. Mm -hmm. So the, the, 1066, we have have, have uh, William the Conqueror going to England. Well, in the 860s, 870s, we have Rurik, uh, who is a Scandinavian, uh, a, a Danish uh, uh, potentate who leads a major tribe that's a trading area, but are visitors. They they are sailing up and down the Dnieper River from the Baltic all the way to the Black Sea, but they're foreigners. Well, they are chosen by the aristocrats in uh, what we would now call modern Ukraine, uh, Western Russia, to be the local leaders, the prince of Novgorod and later uh, Kiev. Uh, and that becomes the first royal family. Mm-hmm. And we don't really get a strong sense of them until, well, his great, Rurik's great-grandsons, uh, Yaroslav the Wise. But our connection really starts in, in as soon as they're free from the Soviet Union in 92. Mm-hmm. So all of that history brings them down to this country that's been a vassal of Poland, a vassal of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a vassal of the Russian Empire. Uh, and then finally, in 92, uh, they've separated themselves. They've decided to become a democracy. And they are looking for where they go. Uh-huh. Now, who are they? The that that sounds like a difficult question to answer given the history you just gave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the east, about forty percent. When I say east, east and west, um, the Dnieper River defi- divides the Ukraine essentially uh, uh, one third to the east, two thirds to the west. The one third east of the Dnieper River. That's got about 40% Russian speakers, native Russian speakers. Uh, The current president, Zelensky, he is a native Russian speaker. So he's a Russian Jew. Mm -hmm. His first language is Russian. He also speaks Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Then he speaks Ukrainian as a third language. And as you've heard, of course, he speaks also German, French, and and, and English. Now, to the West... And remember the very far west, Lviv, that we hear so much about, mm-hmm. as it's 45 kilometers from Poland. This is the place where, where people are organizing themselves to leave, to get to Poland. You take the railroad to Lviv, then you get a bus to Poland uh, yeah, because the yeah. bus routes and the roads are still open. Lviv was a city 
in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So people over 40 years of age, if you're academic, you're at the uh, the university, you're doing something in Lviv, uh, if you can't find an English speaker, you can find over 50, you can find a German speaker mm-hmm. because their parents, if they were the educated class, would have spoken German because that was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm-hmm. as was the borderlands with Poland. Southern Poland was part of Austria-Hungary. So Krakow, the second largest city in Poland, yeah. and Lviv were fairly close together. Those are places where sp- people spoke German because of the influence of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah. So you've got this division where, and let's add another dimension to this, the upper class, the ruling class, the aristocracy in the Ukraine, they are typically uh, either Russians or Poles or Russified or Polonized Ukrainians who accepted in their particular area the hegemony of the the major power mm-hmm. where they were to the east Russia to the west the Polish Lithuanian Republic and then the um, and then Poland itself. So they had the customs, the language, the 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 religion of those particular groups. Yeah. So we have Russian speakers to the east, but we also have Eastern Orthodox Christians. Yeah. We have Eastern Uniate Christians in the Western part. That is, they they respect Rome. They are part of the Roman Catholic Church, but their rights are Eastern European. So what goes on in church looks very much like what happens in the East on the other side of the Dnieper River or in Russia, Mm -hmm. but they are, in fact, Roman Catholics. So we have religion, we have culture, we have language in these various areas. And the name. It means borderlands. You know, yeah. it doesn't mean the valley of the central area around a river, like the uh, um, uh, the, the 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 Danube for Austria. Yeah. The, that's it's it's the Austria is this valley, the eastern part of Austria, uh, where that's the the Vienna is. It's the valley of the Danube. Well, in Ukraine, this borderlands essentially is an area that isn't protected. You don't have mountains on the sides. You don't have major rivers that separate it. It's a broad, fertile plain. It looks very much like Kansas, Nebraska, rich black soil. It's been called the breadbasket of Europe for several hundred years. uh, When I taught in the Ukraine, there was a lecture that I did uh, three times. I didn't dare do it a fourth. It didn't go over very well. I can, if you give me an hour, I can show you where the entire Second World War is because of Ukraine. Well, and I wanted to to ask about the Second World War in particular because I was listening to the remarks you gave on on KVEC down there in the Central Coast and the conversation with uh, Dr. Martinez, and I, I, and then I just know the headlines that I've been seeing, right? Because I'm checking on the headlines, I'm checking on the conflict, and I wanted to ask. In the last, you know, fifty days since the since the Russians invaded, there have been a lot of comparisons with World War II, and you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on on whether or not those comparisons were warranted, given what we've seen conflict wise in the last fifty days or so. It's eerie. It's eerie. Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine. And we've heard a lot about it. It's 35 kilometers from the Russian border. Uh, It's in the very northeast corner of the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is an area primarily people by Russian speakers. uh, There, 60, 70% of the people in the city 
uh, are, are Russian speakers. I've uh, the last four national elections in in the Ukraine. Uh-huh. I've been an international observer in three of those. So Kharkiv was the first major city I became familiar with. I had responsibilities for election postings there. Uh, this is primarily a Russian speaking area. Russians peopled the area after the Second World War because Stalin thought Ukrainians weren't loyal. Mm-hmm. Early in the war, a lot of Ukrainians went over, let's say a lot, we're talking 25% or so, went over to the German side. Mm-hmm. They looked upon the German invaders as liberators from Soviet Russia. So, you know, 25% was enough to make Stalin very nervous, very cautious. And after the war, he removed, not necessarily identifying people who had gone over, but just saying, you know, we're going to take certain parts of the the country and we're going to cleanse them. Mm -hmm. So we will move those people to Siberia and we will move Russian industry and Russian workers in to make sure this is a safe, stable border area because this is our border. This is an area that that Russia in the time of Catherine the Great uh, was concerned because it was a Turkish area. Uh-huh. So the Hetmanate in the, in the, at the time of, the, of Catherine the Great, uh, the, the middle of her reign, uh, these, these were Turks yeah. and Cossacks and Tartars who were not loyal to Moscow. Is, well, it, it, is it fair to say that there are echoes of some of what you're describing, the justifications that were coming from Stalin, that there are echoes in what we're hearing from Moscow today and what we're hearing from Putin today? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Putin's rendition, you know, Putin considers himself a political historian, that he talks about wow. politics with a view towards history, but his history is not quite right. He sees the Ukraine as having been part of Russia since the very beginning of the Kevin Rus. If you think about the name, the cultural name for Russia, Kevin Rus, Kiev is a city inside of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Well, remember the Varangians? You know, you yeah. pick Rurik in the 860s to be the uh, to be your 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 head man. You make him the prince because these other families can't get along. Remember, some of them are Russian, some of them uh-huh. are Polish, some of them are Lithuanian. So think of this as very much like the Holy Roman Empire along yeah. the Rhine. That you you the electors of the Holy Roman Empire, the princes of the different states. They decide upon an emperor that they can agree on that's going to not take away their power, uh-huh. but going to give them some kind of centralized authority that gets along with Rome, because you have to get along with the church, uh-huh. that also can defend the group of electors and their particular states from outsiders. So we're doing the same sort of thing with Rurik and the Boyers along the Dnieper. We are picking him because he's not one of us. He's not Polish. He's not Russian. He's not Ukrainian. He's not Tartar. He's not a Cossack. He is someone with from a noble family back in Scandinavia who appropriately can bring a ruling authority elected by and respected by these other princes to give some sort of central government to the uh, the area of the Ukraine. Uh-huh. And he first appointed in in uh, in Novgorod, which is in Russia. So, and then of course the important trading area because the Dnieper goes from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Think about how important that is. That you go from this northern sea where you've got Scandinavia and Sweden being the major power for most of the early modern history, mm-hmm. all the way down through Russia, through these Russian territories to the Balt to the Black Sea, where of course the Turkish Empire 
And of course, you've got the outlet to the Mediterranean. So this, from a trading point of view, is extremely important, which is why uh, the Ukraine was important as a trading uh, center. And of course, having this wonderful black soil and being extremely productive, you've got agricultural produce that gives the riches from the ground. So there's every reason to be successful. But remember, no borders. There is also the attractiveness of the Ukraine to tribes from the east, from the steppes coming in, from the Russians to the north, from the Poles and Lithuanians to the northwest, and of course, the Turks from the south. Crimea was Turkish. Remember the Crimean War? Mm-hmm. Turkey was the owner of Crimea. Russia wanted it. And the allies, uh, England and France, were supporting the Turks because of their uh, their tensions with the uh, Russians, their competition with the Russians over Asia. So the Russians are you know, looking south toward India, which is the great jewel in the British empire in the 19th century. Yeah. And so why would the British support the Turks against the Russians who were infidels? Well, they have this rival, this long-term rivalry with the, uh, with the Russians. Yeah. And in the middle of that, what's exactly in the middle of that is the Ukraine. Yeah. Unreal. It uh, seems like such a contested area, you know, yes. go, going back centuries. Um, but, it, but taking a look at kind of uh, what's, what's going on there now, you know, I'm especially with some of the headlines we're seeing, I think in the last two weeks with the U S seemingly to increase their involvement, increase the, the aid that's being sent over. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask, you know, for people who don't know the geopolitical nuance of this, let's say, what is it? What does it mean when we see a headline that says U.S. to increase um, aid to Ukraine by, you know, eight hundred million dollars? You know, what is the form that that aid takes? Is something I was curious to get your thoughts on. Well, last last week, that the eight hundred million, the the number you're referring to in particular, uh-huh. that deals with their their seventeen hind helicopters. Uh, that are included in that. These are large Russian attack helicopters, but they also carry troops. You can carry 15, 20 troops or so. Okay. Besides, uh, uh, machine guns and missiles that can be launched from the helicopter. Uh, this is made by the Russians. It's been upgraded. In fact, those particular helicopters were supposed to go to the Afghan government mm-hmm. uh, if we c- t- continued our operations in Afghanistan. So these were helicopters that uh, the allies, had, uh, our Eastern European allies, who, of course, are armed with Russian uh, Russian weaponry. Yeah. So, so it sounds like includes- equipment. It sounds like it's a helicopter. Yes. Okay. They're missiles. Uh, their anti-tank missile Stinger, a man and man uh, man launched anti-tank missiles. Mm-hmm. There are anti-aircraft missiles uh, as well as anti-tank missiles, and we're starting to include some anti-ship missiles, uh, which of course are famous right now. The two Neptunes that uh, sank the uh, Moskva mm-hmm. uh, day before yesterday are in the news and uh, quite a feather in the Ukrainians' cap, having sunk the the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, yeah. So that's the sort of things we're we're giving them. Uh, and of course, for the weapons we've already given them, they have to be restocked with ammunition. Yeah. So, so something that was just fascinating to me and I wish I knew more about. Um, so I, I did my graduate work in political science in, in Barcelona. And when I was in Barcelona, I dove deep into the topic of the Spanish Civil War um, and, and what and what a you know, a perfect place to do it. Right. And, and something that I was uh, observing in my study was just the way that aid would go to Spain, you know, in 37, 38, 39, 
How did aid reach Spain from some of the countries that were involved? Do we know how, how is this aid reaching Ukraine? Is it as simple as, uh, you know, airplanes showing up at the airport with this kind of equipment on board? Or, or is it taking a bunch of different routes, I would imagine? It's a bunch of different routes. Some is as simple as airplanes showing up. A lot of it goes through Poland. It goes into uh, into the Ukraine by, uh, by, by road. It goes in by rail. So uh, we're using everything to get it there. Wow. Remember, we're talking a massive amount of aid. Yeah. In the last uh, in the last year or so, we're talking over two billion. That's to about two point three billion, I believe, is the uh, the wow. latest figure I've seen. Wow. When was when was the last time the U.S. Uh, uh, contributed these types of levels of aid in, in an international conflict? Ah. Oh. Just curious, just curious, yeah. This level, it's probably, it's probably Korea. Wow. Probably the Korean War. Wow. So I'm over, sorry. over fifty years ago, yeah. Wow. Unreal. Yeah, this that, is massive. This is massive. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I can see. Well, that makes a lot more sense. Why I'm reading about it every day. You know, seeing these headlines come through, um, just amazing. I, I appreciate it because it's, it's something that I know some of our listeners are also curious about what's going on there, but it's not always. Uh, the coverage is not always as digestible as we would like it to be. Perhaps. And you need, and you ask a breath question. You know, it's not. It's two point three billion, but what does that mean? What do you compare it to? Well, we haven't done anything like that since um, uh, since, since the uh, since the Korean War. Wow. I mean, even the massive aid in seventy three to uh, to Israel when you know to turn around the situation where they needed to be rearmed mm-hmm. they were uh they the the egyptian army had crossed the suez canal at night in a very uh a very successful tactical operation that we didn't think the egyptians were capable mm-hmm. of a major crossing of the suez canal with more than a division of troops and divisions about 20,000 troops, you know, with all of their equipment, the impedimenti of war, the tanks, the trucks, all of those things. Uh, And the Israelis were used, they're outnumbered. So they're using their weapons to defend themselves uh, and they're using them up. They needed to restock the tank ammunition. They used M60 tanks, 105 millimeter rounds. Those had to be replaced. Nothing like what we're talking about now. Got billion, uh, $2.3 billion. Uh, and certainly the amount of time, you know, we work with the Israelis over, you know, 40 years, yeah. uh, uh, supporting them in a lot of commonality with our weaponry means that we sell them things, but we also supply them things in our special aid programs. Okay. Well, it wasn't a long-term aid sharing. This is a massive influx of uh, American, uh, uh, supported equipment. It's not all American equipment. A lot of it is Russian equipment that our NATO allies had as holdover since their days as yeah. satellite nations. Got now, it. I tell you, I was before I retired from the government. Uh, I was on the team that negotiated the new expansion of NATO with fourteen of the fifteen new countries. I spent the most time actually in and working on Poland. Yeah. Over a year and a half, I probably spent six months in Poland. They spent a lot of time here in California, down in Monterey, negotiating with us at the postgraduate school. And not a week would go by when a senior poll from the commander in chief of land forces down to the diplomats we worked with wouldn't say to me something like, so tell us, 
we consider ourselves tied to the Ukrainians very closely, mm -hmm. that it's the same language, we are the same people. Uh, and I didn't know nearly as much about the history then as I do now, that what happens if we get 120% of what we actually need from NATO stocks? Could we make arrangements to provide some of that to help the Ukrainians who are being pressured by Russia? And of course, I gave the responsible answer. Uh, and that is, that's above my pay grade. Uh -huh. And if I answer that, if I gave you an answer, when I get back to California, even though I'm a tenured professor at the postgraduate school, I'll be looking for a job. Uh -huh. However, as, a, as, a, as an American, as a private citizen, privately, I would say to you, that's not only above my pay grade, it's above the pay grade of the admiral I work for. It's above the pay grade of the secretary of defense. That's a president to president question. However, if I were you, I wouldn't ask the question that if you have a bilateral defense relationship with the Ukrainians, that supports your strategic position within NATO and separately as an individual, individual and sovereign state, that mm -hmm. that's your business. Nobody is going to criticize you. If you ask the question, you will start a set of negotiations. You might not like the route and the road that takes. Yeah. I wouldn't ask the questions. They followed that. They followed that. And they have been working closely, the polls with the Ukrainians. Uh, you will remember a couple of weeks ago, the 29 uh, the, the 30 MiG-29 aircraft uh -huh. that were being discussed, that the Poles were willing to give over to the uh, to the Ukrainians. And now remember, those are 30, more than 30 years old. That's uh, generation three and four air airplanes, the technology. They're going to be replaced anyway, probably with F-16 EXs. But the Poles wanted to make sure they got the backfill, mm -hmm. that if they give up those airplanes, are they going to get newer, more, more modern American or other NATO aircraft that will make up for that in their inventory so they can defend themselves in case the situation uh, escalates and uh, they, they, they have to call upon their air assets for their own defense. Yeah. So the reason why the Poles were willing to do that is, one, they were going to replace those anyway. Like the Stinger missiles that we're giving up, those are reaching the end of their service life. We were going to start replacing those anyway. They have to be, we'd have to get them out of the inventory. They'd have to be destroyed. Why not give as many of those as you can to the Ukrainians? Yeah. They are obviously having great success in their use. The, uh, the We thought that by now, 50 days into the conflict, the Russians would have air superiority, if not air dominance. Mm -hmm. And what we've got in the skies over the Ukraine is a contested airspace. Wow. The Ukrainian airspace is contested. The Ukrainians have done an excellent job in defending their airspace and in suppressing the Soviets' use of their, the Russian use of their uh, their latest fighters, the SU-34s and SU-37s. Yeah. These are Generation 5 airplanes, and they are not able to fly freely because the anti-aircraft ability of the Ukrainian air uh, defense forces is so good. Yeah. Wow. That's that's something I, I, I wanted to focus for a moment on is um, so the Ukrainians are receiving support from from NATO and, and other sources and the support is taking a variety yes, of us. yeah variety of forms. Uh, the support's taking Stinger missile, missiles, helicopters, uh, other items. Um, I, I did want to ask, uh, take a look at the Russian side of it and see, you know, obviously Vladimir Putin is heavily involved. There are 
Some debates out there as to the extent that this is a Putin war uh, versus the larger system that's supporting Putin. Um, and, and I wanted to ask, because I know on that KVEC program, uh, there was a scenario presented where Putin gets removed uh, uh, from power if he pursues, let's say, a thermonuclear option. If he's entertaining that too closely, other folks on the Russian side may step in. And I wanted to take your temperature on that and see what, how likely is that to happen? And if it did happen, how might that play out? Well, here's a couple of things you need to look at when you ask that question. First, how are decisions made and who's in control? You've got one man rule in Russia right now. In the old Soviet Union, you had a Politburo. So you had 10 to 12 people who were ran this committee, an executive committee, if you will, for the party. Mm -hmm. And you can't pull the party together and have a vote on every issue. So the Politburo was their executive committee, if you will, to do that. Putin seems to have done away with that sort of operation in this hierarchical system. He certainly has advisors. He has ministers. He has oligarchs that are in an unofficial cabinet who are close to him. Uh But he has, over the last 20 years, has reduced the amount of input he seems to use to make decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no one he listens to, and it also doesn't mean that there's not political pressure when he makes certain decisions. I mean, you will notice that when he's about to make a decision, he was going to war, he's decided to enlarge the war, he goes out to a large public gathering at a sports stadium, and he talks to, I think it was fourteen or 15,000 people in the cold. I mean, he's got a down coat and a turtleneck sweater, which kind of lets you know the weather's not that good. And there were people that were waving flags, you know, the the standard thing we see at a political gathering where he's putting out his message, his propaganda. He's putting it out that he's fighting Nazism, that the Russians who live in the Ukraine are being oppressed, that Russia and the Ukraine are the same country, his historic view. And they've always been the same country. And it's only dissidents in Ukraine who want this separation. And these are people who can't be trusted, who are who are committing genocide, who are attacking Russian speakers. It's you know, all of that sort of thing that he puts out. Now, let me offer you another view of how you might look at how Russia is being run today. Uh-huh. The oligarchs are in business and they're in business to make money. They operate the old nationally owned businesses that were turned over by Putin as he took over the country. These nationally owned businesses were turned over to individuals to uh, make a capitalist or a pseudo-capitalist system where they now could operate for profit rather than having these owned by the uh, by the state. Having these, and, and, and of course, these individuals became very wealthy. If you think about this, it's 1932. Franklin Roosevelt runs against Al Capone and Al Capone wins. So the mafia actually runs the country. They own the country. You know, instead of them being criminals and their adversaries, they are the owners. So the the oligarchs, some of which are former KGB, some are 
former apparatchiks, people who were bureaucrats inside the system. Uh-huh. And some were just people that, you know, he happened to know that came in really out of nowhere. They were sort of on the edge, small businessmen. So we have mixtures of these people. They are not friends. They're not fraternity brothers. Uh-huh. They are a lot like 1956, the Mafia Commission. Wow. The five families in New York decided every time we go to war, the government and the police know what we're doing and they can figure out who we are. They can see us. We become visible. We become visible to the public. This is not good for business. Mm-hmm. So instead of fighting each other, why don't we have a commission, a mm-hmm. court, if you will, in the larger sense of that word, where we come together, work out our differences and we don't fight. But we certainly don't fight in public. That we don't have these open wars. The Constellamari's wars have been going on within the mafia since the 1930s, you know, up until the 1950s. They went in for 20 years yeah. because they were, they were fighting over the assets. These guys aren't friends. The oligarchs can very easily come to Putin and say, look, uh, they don't have this wonderful word, La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. But yeah. they can easily say to him, listen, you're ruining this thing of ours. We have you in political charge so that we can all make money. Well, they're seizing our yachts. They're seizing our assets. We can't travel anymore. We are losing money because the ruble has fallen already 25%. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to get worse. The rest of the world seems to be buying into these sanctions slowly, not as fast as we would like, but a lot faster than the Russians would like, excuse me, and a lot bigger than they were expecting. So we want you to curtail your behavior. He Uh doesn't respond. He continues the war. He says, not only am I going to continue the war, maybe I'm going to use tactical nukes. Maybe I'm going to use chemical weapons because I am going to bring these damn Ukrainians to heal. Uh You know, they won't respond. They were supposed to fold over in a week. You know, now this is almost two months. And much instead of folding over, it looks like there's going to be a major battle for around Kharkiv. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Kharkiv is 40 kilometers from Kursk. Mm-hmm. Kursk is the site of the largest tank battle in history. Yeah. 4,000 yeah. tanks on the Soviet side, 4,000, almost 4,000 tanks on the German side. The largest tank battle in history of the Second World War. Many would say Kursk is the battle that decided the Second World War, the land portion of it in Europe. Uh-huh. That, that because after Kurtz, the, the the Soviets continued to be victorious and push west. Uh-huh. After Kurtz, they 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 there were there were losses, but after that, like Gettysburg and the Civil War, that, that the Union didn't win everything, but it won the major campaigns after that, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the end for the South. Got it. Got it. Okay. Beginning of the end. That was the beginning of the end. Well, this we're talking thirty kilometers away, the same territory where the Red Army was fighting. This is open country, and now we're talking armored warfare. The thing I used to study, you know, what airland battle, uh, as opposed to this this guerrilla fight in cities, that sort of thing. Uh, And are the, the the question that we've got from a military perspective right now, are the Ukrainians ready for a major? armored, mechanized warfare engagement on open land. Can they win in the forest fighting a superior enemy with heavy armored forces when you suppress their air and you can get into their columns in the rear, destroy their supplies and attack their tanks from cover? Can you win in this open warfare? Because they don't have thousands of tanks. They don't have thousands of armored personnel carriers. So so, um, looking looking at the 
at that dynamic, though, that you were talking about, that dynamic of how Putin came to power, the, the system at uh, propping him up currently, um, you know, on a scale from one to five, how likely is it that that Putin, I don't know, in the next, if he continues this escalation, if he entertains the thermonuclear tactical nuke option, um, how likely is it that he something happens within to replace him or to remove from from his current role? Does it I'd seem likely? Sixty percent, seventy percent chance okay. that if he. But now remember, you have to know he's going to do it. You yeah. know, does he share that with you? But that these people, the the oligarchs and the other elites, but not just the oligarchs, but the other elites, the bureaucratic, the military elites, they are not looking for a thermonuclear exchange. Yeah. That if you escalate to tactical nukes, that that's one step closer to a massive thermonuclear exchange going to a global war which nobody is going to win. That's, the Russians it, are not stupid. Yeah. A, along with being a terrible tragedy, that's bad for business. And it sounds like that's oh, what he's... Really be, yeah. Being dead is bad for business. <laughs> yes. yes. Having yeah. your cities a smoldering wreck, that's really bad for business. Bad for business. That is not what they want. The, yeah. the, these, are not, these people are not suicidal. Yeah. They, they may be... This has been referred to as a... Uh, I call it a thugocracy. Yeah. But it's a, it's, it's, a crim, it's a large criminal enterprise. Well, the Al, Al, the Al Capone comparison was very apt. It took me a second to follow you as you were describing that, but then yeah, then I caught. Maybe do. That's uh, I, I've done this around the world for the last twenty years. Yeah, no, it's that I never thought of it that way. So that was really really interesting. You understand? Um, I'm, I'm an ex prosecutor. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I was an organized crime prosecutor in Chicago. I feel like we're just, Jim, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of your background, I feel like. So I more things than most people will ever try. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. Fascinating. Because, I, again, I was hearing, I was listening to that radio program, and it just got me thinking, okay, how does that scenario play out, you know, where, where Putin is removed from power by whatever means it occurs? You know, yeah, what they does- don't have to kill him. They just give him a DACA on the Black Sea. says, listen, you're out. Yeah. We can't afford this. Think about the war now. But my colleague who comes on with me on the program yeah. on KTP from time to time, Professor Larry Martinez, he's a political economist. So he talks about economic cost and you know what the incentives are. Uh-huh. One of the things, if Larry were here, he would tell you that the war for Russia is costing $1 billion a day. That's yeah. billion with a B. This is serious money into a place where their their economic reserves, their reserves, I mean, the, the total worth of the uh, their economy, it's $644 billion. Wow. Billion dollars. If you're going to fight for a week and take Kiev, put in your own government, and then have a state next to you like Belarus, they, they're not part of you, but they do what you say. So, or as some people would call it, the Finlandization mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of, uh, of Ukraine, where whatever they're going to do, they look to their backs and say, okay, how will the Russians like that? Or they will talk to you even, they'll be even more direct, but they always think about it. If that's what you want and you're going to get it within a week to two weeks, so we're talking $15, $20 billion, uh, you lose a couple hundred people, everything's okay. Well, now we think the Russians, it's possible they've got up to 35,000 killed and wounded, that they've lost 25% of their vehicles. Uh, this is trucks, tanks, armored personnel carriers, uh, airplanes, uh, 25% of their, of their the combat power that was sent. And remember, this is about, uh, about 40% of their combat power from the whole army was sent here. 
I was going to ask that. Okay, yeah. got so it. It's a fairly high percent. I mean, they have a big country, 11 time zones to yeah. run, but about yeah. 45% was dedicated to this. And if they've lost 25% of that, that's a serious loss. Yeah. We're talking a yeah. billion dollars a day for more than 50 days now uh, and no direct end in sight. And remember, the things you want to conquer, Mariupol is a city you need. You want to seize the Azov Sea and make it a Russian lake. So you want all of the coastline, the Ukrainian coastline of the Azov Sea, or the major port you've destroyed. So yeah. if Russia going to use it, they've got to rebuild it. You know, when the ceasefire is done, the Ukraine hopefully gets all this back. You know, we're as the West, we're going to have to help them rebuild it. It's going to be phenomenal. Yeah. The reconstruction cost in the Ukraine is going to be the largest civil engineering project in history. Yeah. I would think we're going to have something like a Marshall Plan. Uh-huh. This will be larger than building the pyramids. <laughs> I mean, 43 million people. This is a major country. The Ukraine yeah. is 244,000 square miles. Texas is 266. So if you look at the map of the Ukraine, it looks like Texas, and it's about the same size. Think of Texas and take off the panhandle. Okay. And the, if you're from Oklahoma, you'd like that because, you know, <laughs> the Oklahomans think that they ought to have the panhandle anyway. Uh-huh. So Texas without the panhandle, uh, it's roughly the same size, about a thousand miles from one side to the other, you know, 700 miles north to south. Uh-huh. Uh, it's roughly the size of Texas and with twice the population of yeah. Texas. And it's been built up for 500 years. The Ukrainians claim, I haven't seen the numbers to prove this, but they claim that they have the most universities per citizen of any state in Eastern Europe and as much as any of the the larger countries in Western Europe. Yeah. And and many of their universities are very good. Yeah. I've I've taught at the National University Law School. I've lectured at Mechnikov and I've lectured up in uh, in Odessa and I've lectured up in... um, uh, in Kiev as well. Yeah. I've I've been privileged enough to do some traveling in Europe, but I have never made it to Ukraine, unfortunately. Beautiful countries. Yeah. Odessa is yeah. a very Mediterranean-looking city. Yeah. Catherine the Great wanted this done. She wanted a major port. She wanted it to be in the Italianate style. She sent uh, Marshal Potemkin to, uh, to the area. Potemkin gets three or four major Italian architects and they build this absolutely beautiful city. Oh man. And I, and I hope it stays that way. You know, uh, that's, that's one of the, I mean, uh, you know, loss of life, uh, impact to economy, all of these things, that is the, the tragedy of, of this war, but you know, what it does to some of these cities too. And some of the footage that Americans are seeing day in and day out coming from some of these historic cities is, is terrible. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be respectful of your time because I know we're just over the hour mark at the moment. Um, but I did want to ask a question for, for again, the, the uninitiated, the, the folks that are following this conflict from a distance, may not know all the nuances of it. Um, you know, why, in your words, kind of why would, why does Ukrainian independence matter to the uh, average American, let's say, who's who's watching this conflict from a dis- distance. In your own words, how would you s- describe why this conflict matters? Let's go back to World War II. Let's look at the, the major powers in Europe, and then, of course, in the Pacific, because we create a world war. What we're fighting over is individual human rights, 
national self-determination and the rule of law applying everywhere on the planet. That's what we were fighting for. It didn't start out that way, but that's what we were fighting for. At the end of the war, we created a new system, the United Nations, the international monetary system, uh, the rule of law. We settled on a number of very, very important things. Self-determination was a World War I catchword, the Wilson's 14 points. Self-determination is the one that brought the little nations to Versailles. That they came, you know, yeah. we're not going to be big. We're not yeah. going to be powerful. There's going to be no Hungarian aggrandizement. There's going to be no Czech uh, hegemony over the world. But if we've got national self-determination, as little nations, we're going to be the equal of the big ones legally and respect it. That's going to be dealt with in institutions like the International Court of Justice, like the Security Council, like the General Assembly. We set up this international system. Now, it's based on some very old law, the the Hague and Geneva Conventions, which had been around for a while, and the Peace of Westphalia in 1649, which would settle that borders would not be changed by internecine warfare. So two countries fight over an issue. We're not going to change the borders and move people around after that, the borders are going to stay where they are. You can fight over other things, but we're not fighting over that. That's going to be the legal basis of the international order. All of that is institutionalized after the Second World War. That has been generally the case, and I'm not going to say it's been peaceful since 1945 by any means. We had wars of self-determination. We had decolonization in the world. We had all of those things where we we were churning but we were going after East and West, the, the, the communist world, the socialist world, and the Western world would at least argue those things in principle, whether we lived up to them on both sides, there were sure. questions if we lived up to them, but at least we had the principles we were fighting about. This now is a major invasion. We're talking almost a quarter of a million people, 210,000 invaded. There were 40,000 Belarusian soldiers, by the way, mobile who are still mobilized uh-huh. we don't know where they're going what they're going to do are they going to back the uh, the russian play here but a quarter of a million people invade a neighboring country and we start chopping pieces off are we going to take the donbass we've already taken crimea are we taking a strip of land from maripol down to to crimea to connect those two to the russian homeland Where is this going to go? This violates those basic principles of international law, the rule of law. If the world isn't stable in one part because the rule of law is violated, then the rule of law isn't a a sanctum sanctorium. It isn't that anywhere. That is a principle that allows us to have our security that we are basing that security on. Uh, our our collective security arrangements, NATO, CENTO, CEDO, are all based upon that rule of law. If we don't have the rule, if we don't have the respectful law and order for human rights, for international law, then we're all unsafe. That makes me that that makes me think of that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King quote: "An injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere." That is or, absolutely or... correct in international law, just as it is in human rights within our own country. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Armstead, I, I appreciate this. I feel like we just scratched the surface of 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 this topic. There were so many departures. Oh, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. 
Yeah. And, and I hope that we can connect uh, on this platform in the future and, and dive into these, you know, give some of these other topics the attention they deserve. Because I'd be happy to talk to you again about this. Yeah. Thank you very much. An hour doesn't seem like nearly enough time, but I think we did good today. <laughs> yes, sir. So anyways, thank you again for your time. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Sacramento Historical Society's The American Attic. If you'd like to learn more about the Society and upcoming speaker series, please visit sachistoricalsociety.org. If you have ideas for topics and speakers we can engage, drop us a line at admin at sachistoricalsociety.org. See you next time.